How much do you know about pregnancy and alcohol? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb may cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in unborn children. It may lead to lifelong physical and or neurodevelopmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting to situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to chat with the people who understand FASD. This is Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest episode of our little podcast. My name is Kurt Lewis, and today I'm going to tell you a secret. Before everyone gets ahead of themselves, no, I'm not revealing the secrets of the Bermuda Triangle or KFC's 11 Herbs and Spices. Today, we are revealing the identity of the mysterious Karen. As you may remember, the final episode of Series 1 we had on a guest called Karen, who was a birth mother of a child with FASD. Today, we are chatting with that same mother without our stand-in actress, Tanya, to recite her responses. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Or should I say Sophie? Hi, Kurt. Yes, it is. My real name is Sophie. And uh, yeah, we can talk about that some more if you'd like to. What did you think of our last interview? Was it somewhat surreal having an actress speak your responses? It was, and it's, it's funny when you hear somebody else talking and you know that they're talking from the scripts that you've spoken, you realise some of the flaws in the way that you can talk. I think, yeah, it was quite surreal. It, it was my story that was being told, and I was very grateful to Tim for doing that for us. Yes, she did a really good job, although I'm guessing you kind of had someone in your mind, like maybe an actress. I don't think we had the funds to afford, say, like, you know, uh Julia Roberts or anyone like that, but, you know, I'm glad Tanya was on board to help. She was, she was, and she's probably a lot more um, normal like me, I'm guessing, than Julia Roberts might be. <laughs> probably a tad, <laughs> yeah, probably. So a lot of listeners are probably thinking now, why reveal your identity now? What has changed? Okay, so I guess what's changed mon monumentally for us as a family and for me personally, but also my son, two things really. One of those is when I last spoke, we had suspicion that he may have had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but we didn't have a confirmed diagnosis, whereas now we do, which changes things again, I guess. The other thing is that I recently gave evidence at the Senate inquiry into FASD, and taking that step was quite a major step forward. And Doing that, I felt this was now public information, so it was time to reveal my identity. Why did you feel the need to hide your identity for the interview? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's, again, several answers to that question. The, the first would probably be because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready personally to share my personal story. There is so much stigma attached to FASD, and particularly for birth mothers, because sadly, our society, because there is a lack of community awareness and there's been no, to date, general population studies around prevalence, there's been no general population health campaigns around FASD, the, the general consensus is that if somebody drinks during pregnancy, that they do it knowingly, that they do it being fully aware of all of the potential harms of alcohol during pregnancy, and it's a... 
I'm going to use words that I've heard many times. These are not my impressions. But you will hear that it's a selfish decision. It's an uneducated decision. It's thoughtless. Everybody knows that alcohol is dangerous. There are many, many stigmas and negative words around that. So I'm not sure if I just answered your question then or if I went off on a tangent. I think that's very important to acknowledge because whenever I say I've chatted to someone who is a birth mother of FASD, you get that kind of stuff. And then I say, well, it's not her fault. It's she's She was following the guidelines at the time. She didn't know. And that's a situation for a lot of birth mothers, I feel, not just the birth mothers who deliberately drink. There are other people out there who didn't know they were pregnant or were just following the guidelines set down in 2009. Yeah. And and the thing is with that as well, when, when we talk about sort of deliberately drinking, just to, to use the word that you used, I think what's really clear to me and, and as a birth mother with my own personal scenario, which will be different to the next person, but... I think if somebody drinks, they do it for one of a few reasons and never is that reason because they want to intentionally harm their developing baby. It's either because they don't know they're pregnant, it's because they don't know the risk and a significant risk of alcohol to a developing fetus, or it's because they don't have the support to be able to stop drinking um, in their community group, their surroundings or other external supports. So there are reasons why people continue to drink and or drink during pregnancy, I should say. Sorry, I was just going to say, I find it somewhat frustrating. We should be helping these people, not really insulting them kind of stuff. We should be out helping these people who have, yeah, just all the reasons you just said, it's just, yeah, I find it somewhat frustrating. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting when you when you start to share your story, which I have been involved recently in some campaigning around alcohol labeling which we now have an outcome for so we i won't talk about that more today but in that lead up i've been talking to ministers and ministers advisors and it's been really interesting to hear other people's perception and response to my personal story so i've shared my story a number of times now and the reason i've needed to do that is because i realized how impactful it is I won't rehash our last podcast, but certainly what I shared with your listeners as Karen was that, you know, my prenatal alcohol exposure for my my developing baby was twice before I knew I was pregnant, Mm. Um, both what would be classed as binge episodes. And then, as you mentioned, pre-2009, the National Health and Medical Research Council guidelines stipulated that two units per day up to five days a week was was allowable, was safe. Exactly. Um, And so I would have one unit of alcohol per week thinking that I was well below the guidelines. So when I've shared that with other people of childbearing age, the information I've got back from them has been of shock, of surprise, Mm. um, of concern when they think about their own families and the people around them who could equally have been impacted too. I think that's probably the reaction of a lot of Australians, to be honest. What have you been up to since we last talked? What has happened? Has your child received a diagnosis yet? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, my son received diagnosis just over two months ago. So that was following further testing with the neuroscience unit. And, you know, that was a uh, one and a half hour interview with my husband and I from a clinical psychologist, lots of history screening, looking at previous assessments, and then a team having to come together for that collective to make a recommendation to the paediatrician that he has FASD. He's just undergone two further assessments 
which involved a lot of questionnaires and history gathering from his teachers, but also from myself, as well as the previous assessments. So next week, we get the outcome of those further assessments. To date, he's got four areas of neurodevelopmental impairment, and we will know more in terms of damage as we go forward with that. I've been very busy with the Senate inquiry and giving evidence there, and also very active in the alcohol pregnancy warning label campaign with the Food Standards Agency and Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education. There's been much that's been happening in those spaces. And for us personally, there's been a difference for my son in terms of I'm now able to advocate even more strongly with his school. What has been your son's reaction to the diagnosis? He's been amazing, actually. He's been amazing. I think what we we don't describe his diagnosis as a disability. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is very high-functioning. He would be seen as a neurotypical 14-year-old. That's how he's perceived. He hangs out with his friends, he's got a girlfriend, and he, yeah, he's cool, Mm. you know? (laughs) So for him, the stigma attached to the word disability is something that means we don't talk about it in that way in our home. We very much reference things around his challenges, Mm -hmm. around areas that he needs more support, but we really focus on his strengths and how we can build those for him and what that looks like. That's awesome. During your last interview, I'm just thinking, during your last interview, you mentioned you had a younger child who was also born before the so NHMRC guidelines, the specific guidelines we were talking about earlier, which were changed in 2009. Do you have any concerns that he might have FASD, if that's not too personal? No, it's not too personal. Do you know what? It's a really good question. And the reason why that is such a good question is because one of the kind of at-risk criteria, I guess, for potentially identifying an individual with FASD is if they have a sibling who has it. So I am very very lucky, my son is very lucky, we are very lucky as a family that my eldest son, who was two and a half when we had our second child in 2008, was a very, very, very busy boy who didn't sleep very much Mm. and um, was always on the go. And we don't have family support and not coming from Australia physically with us here. So there was never time to even consider going out with friends to you know, enjoy a meal and having a few drinks, which was what my story was with my first child. Yeah. So my son, my younger son, isn't you know he wasn't prenatally alcohol exposed for the reason that my lifestyle was different. Yeah. So no, he he doesn't have any impacts, don't we? Oh, that's good. That, yeah. That's very good. Does but does he know? Does he know about his brother's diagnosis? Yeah, and I. Again, another great question because I think it's interesting when you talk to your children. Of Mm. course, all of our children's personalities are different and we do things in Mm. different ways. But I'd obviously already briefed my younger son and I'd forgotten I'd done that. But he's just such a crazy kid. You know, he just goes with the flow. You've got a lot of crazy uh, kids. You've got a lot of cool kids, if you don't mind me saying. (laughs) Them too. Sometimes it feels like there's many. but. (laughs) But yeah, so he, he kind of you know, just went with the flow and mm. I um, sat down with him and I'd arranged the time, you know, and in my head it was a really big deal to share this information because mm. I had to understand as a neurotypical child who is 12, this could now be a factor that's thrown into, you know, sibling rivalry, mm. sibling discussions, mm. you know, when somebody's on Fortnite and they do something wrong, you know, is the words going to be used that are going to upset the old brother? So I'd really prepared for this discussion with my with my younger son, whereas as it happened, I sat down and started to talk and went, oh, yeah, you told me that. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and I chose my oh. words really carefully and, you know, I'm then saying to him, so how, 
how do you feel about that and how do you think it affects your brother and he was just all over it like he got it mm. and as I say you know we know FASD is a spectrum so my son would be at the lower end of the spectrum and therefore his behaviours I'm, I'm thankful are not violent and whilst he makes very quick impulsive and risky decisions they generally aren't impacting everybody around him. Yeah. Um, it's more sort of anger that comes out, but not in a physical way. So for my younger son, we've helped him to build his resilience around dealing with his brother's behaviours, I guess. Yeah. So it's almost for him, it's a relief because he now gets it too. Like it's not actually his brother just being really mean sometimes. Mm. It's actually that, you know, this is just the way he is. So Is that kind of knowledge important? Like for the whole family to know is that is that important to know have the dat diagnosis of FASD oh look i i can't speak for everybody but i would say for the parents and carers through the work that i do certainly we hear again and again to have the diagnosis it's transformational uh, transformational can't say it transformational, transformational? <laughs> i think um, I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth <laughs> And that's generally because, well, a number of reasons, but I think the words I would use that surmise and summarise everything for me are the difference between can't do something mm. and won't do something. You know, my 12-year-old is neurotypical. He's mature enough that he understands that. It's obviously different with different age groups and different situations with people's children and families. But for my family and my extended family and our extended support group, um, the knowing that it's not won't, it's can't, is massive and yeah. it's made a big difference. And, and knowing where the strengths are so that we can all focus on those strengths and try and defer to those strengths rather mm. than, you know, feeling challenged by the challenges, if you like. Well, that's, that's the challenge. I reckon everyone has their own kind of challenges at the end of the day and I think it's we've all got our own demons to face, for want of a better word, and it's just how we face those demons is is how... We see life, I guess, how we challenge life. Yeah, absolutely. Which brings me to my last question. What's the next step now? What's the next step now you have that diagnosis? Where do you go from here? So, again, everyone's journey is different. For, yeah. for our family, the next steps will be more advocacy in the school environment. So that's key for me. I, I have offered because I'm experienced in the world of training and I've got a lot of knowledge in the fantasy space I have offered to go into the school to deliver training mm -hmm. not in relation to my son but to help educate the teachers in the school so that they've got a better understanding of how FASD impacts a number of the students in their classrooms because we know that trauma presents very similarly to FASD particularly in the learning space and the behavioral space so really trying to help educate the teachers that, you know, we know that 4% of the population realistically have FASD and therefore there's a much higher number of kids in their school that have it and they just don't realise. So there's that aspect in terms of education for people around him. The advocacy with other agencies moving forward, you know, he moves into year 10 next year. He will need support to do more vocational learning. Academic learning is never going to be a strong area for him and having the diagnosis helps us to steer the school in the direction of being able to say, let's not focus on these subjects anymore. We look at vocational learning and employment placement. Mm. And as he ages through that process, again, being able to have that support to access disability employment because it will be a requirement. Knowing at what length that will be yet is unclear, 
We're just waiting on these last couple of assessment results coming through. Once we know more about that, the chances are as a family we may look at applying for NDIS support um, because there are a number of therapies that I really think would help him moving forward that currently we don't do, which could be of great assistance. Can I ask what kind of therapies would that be, just for our listeners' sake at least? Yeah, absolutely. So for my son, again, we're all individual, but for my son, we have a few issues that uh, an occupational therapist would be fabulous to work through. So some of those are sensory, be it tactile, or I'll give you another example, things like having a weighted blanket. That's something that we've talked about doing. We've tried, but we've got the wrong one. So we really need to go through an OT to, to get the understanding around the better supports. Sensory in terms of touch, other things, there's probably a range of things that may be a little bit more personal, but certainly an OT would be great in the space for him. Okay. Um, he's got fabulous um, expressive language, yeah. but his receptive language is impaired. So working with a speech pathologist to really set a plan in place, and I will say this super clearly because it's so important, that the OT or the speech pathologist that we work with will have to be fantastic informed. That is essential because otherwise there can be more harm and good that can be done through using those therapies. And also for my son, as I say, the employment disability pathway will be an area. So being able to have some of that funding will potentially be able to link us into those services as well. There are other things I'd love to do in terms of animal therapy. He's probably not going to accept play therapy, but yeah. they are other services which are fabulous um, potential for people with FASD if the provider is informed. I hope your son is able to get that therapy. Thanks, Kurt. Yeah, and- we feel very optimistic about it. Now, as strange as that must sound having a diagnosis, it's, I, I think as a mother, feeling the guilt when I made the realisation a couple of years ago that I may have you know, been responsible for the prenatal alcohol exposure to my son. Being a mum who's always wanted the best for her children and um, like most mothers do, and knowing that, you know, that's something I will probably carry with me forever, but that I can do the best I can to make sure he gets the best outcomes in life. So, yeah, it feels empowering. Does that, if you don't mind me asking, you you don't have to answer, but does that guilt still bother you? Oh, yes, look... You know, there's there's that part, and, I, and I'm glad you've asked because I think it's something that people shy away from. So thank you. If you ask me, is it am I living with it every day as something that's oppressive and it gets me down? No. Was it like that two years ago? It certainly had the potential to be. I was very lucky. I had the supports around me that when I realised I could start speaking to people who were FASD informed. You know, speaking to Robin on the No FASD Helpline. That was a, a Break, a breakthrough for me, really. Yeah. Talking to Sue Myers, the founder of No First Day Australia, another breakthrough for me, that acceptance mm-hmm. and lack of judgment. You know, that was so key. So for me, telling my story has actually really been quite cathartic and therapeutic. And I will always carry the guilt because I live with my child and I watch his, you know, you always want the best and I watch his challenges and I feel responsible for those. Could I change it? No, I couldn't. I didn't do something knowingly. Would I love to go back and turn the clock back? Yes, I would. But I can't, and therefore I will always continue for the rest of my life and his to do the best I can to support him. Continue to move forward. Absolutely. And you know what? I'm a big believer that things in life happen for a reason. You know, this hasn't happened to help him, but I do believe by speaking out and sharing our story that we can do a greater good with the wider community as well, and I think that's why... Yeah, I have to share my message. That's why I've come out with Sophie so that 
people can learn and I'm not going to hide because of the stigma because we need to break that stigma. That's the only way we're going to go forward and make a difference. That's that's amazing. Honestly, blown away. I Wow, well, it constantly amazes myself how much I'm blown away. I'm sure if there was a tally somewhere, I'd probably hit about 15 at this point blown, being blown away, but... I digress. I'd like to thank you for coming and chatting with us today. And thank you for all your efforts, especially with the Senate inquiry. Your work is amazing and nothing short of amazing. And uh, you're an inspiration. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity. We love your podcasts. They're amazing. Thank you. Uh, I I hope I can put that up on a quote, maybe on a poster. These podcasts are amazing. Maybe (laughs) maybe put it in a review on iTunes. Anyone? Hint, hint to anyone listening. Yes, yes. Do it. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Sophie. Thank you you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Please tune in next week for another episode of Our Little Podcast. If you like this podcast episode, then please show your support by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. This project is funded by the National Disability Insurance Scheme, NDIS, in collaboration with NoFASD Australia. All rights reserved. For more information about FASD, then please go to www.nofasd.org.au.